This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Our guest today has spoken to us several times in the past in his capacity as the host of Planetary Radio. For the past 20 years, he's has talked about and advocated for space exploration as part of the efforts of the Planetary Society to do exactly that. Matt Kaplan was the creator of Planetary Radio back in 2002 and was served as both host and producer of 1,000 programs. The very first show interviewed Dr. Lewis Friedman, co-founder of the Planetary Society, and got aired on KUCI, the radio station affiliated with UC Irvine. Since then, many important speakers have chatted with Matt. These include Arthur C. Clarke, Buzz Aldrin, Elon Musk, and, and I'm guessing half the scientists working at Pasadena's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. There are a lot of scientists at Jet JPL and Caltech, but I've, I've talked to a lot. <laughs> the, the, sh- the show has covered major space and science-related events, such as the landing of probes onto the surface of Mars. Matt has been generous in giving us time in past interviews and has assisted us in securing chats with many members of his team, including Bruce Betts, Emily Lakdawalla, and Bill Nye. Each an enjoyable discussion, and all of which are available in our archives at radioparallax.com. Planetary Radio is heard on over 150 stations across the U.S., and it, too, has a library of archival programs we highly recommend you check out. It turns out that after a 20-year run, Matt is electing to step back from radio hosting duties, but plans to continue with the Planetary Society's advocacy of space exploration. He's had a great run, and we're pleased to talk to him both about those 1,000 programs and what the future may hold. To that end, we're glad to be able to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Matt Kaplan. Thank you, Doug, very much. Um, it has been great fun talking to you over quite a few years now. And, uh, and yeah, I hope, that, <laughs> I hope the little change in my status won't completely change that. Yeah, well, if the new host doesn't put you on your radio show, you, you, you can always give us a call. I'll keep that in mind. Thank you for the invitation. <laughs> You're being handed over to some good hands, I understand. Oh, I really am, yeah. I'm, I'm very happy about this. Um, we had nearly 400 applicants. Uh, to replace me as the host. And uh, the person who rose to the top is somebody that I I can tell stories about uh, because I knew her uh, a year before she became a colleague at the Planetary Society. And she's been with us for a couple of years now as our digital community manager and has done a great job. Uh, Sarah Alamed is just going to be great, has an astrophysics background. Her bachelor's is in astrophysics. She did real astronomy at UC Berkeley and uh, uh, was a science communications person at uh, the Great Griffith, Griffith Observatory, which is one of the places I learned to love this stuff. And uh, we, we stole her from there. Um, the, the story there, if you want to hear it, is fun. Sure. Listen, what happened was I was invited uh, to be on a monthly uh, show that they do at Griffith in front of an audience called All Space Considered. And it's, uh, uh, I, I was, went up, I was on the panel, my wife went with me. She sat down in the audience, and this young woman sits down next to her, and they strike up a conversation. And after the show, Adrian, my wife, comes to me and says, you have to meet this young woman. So I did, and it was great fun, and we took a selfie together. Uh-huh. And I went back to work, and I told our head of communications, our comms team, I said, I met this great woman, we should steal her from Griffith Observatory. <laughs> 
And it took a year, but we hired her as our digital community manager. And, and then, you know, she, with my and other people's encouragement, she applied for uh, the job as host of Planetary Radio. And she won it fair and square. I mean, we had some terrific candidates, wonderful people. Uh, but uh, Sarah brought the right amount of, you know, what Bill Nye likes to call the PB&J, the passion, beauty, and joy of space exploration, space science. Uh, she has the science background, which I definitely never had. I'm just thrilled. I, and, we're, you know, we've been working together. She's going to be heard again on the show this week. And on January 4th, she will uh, take over as host. And hopefully bring you on as, on a regular basis to just kind of round things out. <laughs> I hope I get to show up every now and then. You know, sure. there are some people that I, I hope to continue to talk to. And I'll, be, I'll, I'll continue to talk to some of these heroes of mine in other work that I'll continue to do for the society. But actually, on that first show, January 4th, I mean, who knows if this will hold up. But the plan right now is for Sarah to interview me. So that'll be, that'll be interesting. Oh, that's fabulous. I mean, I look at your job as the host of Planetary Radio. It's just kind of you know a dream job. Uh, how did how did you fall into this back in 2002? Oh, that's interesting. I had actually um, back in 1999, I think. I did some volunteer work for the Planetary Society. I'd been a member for a while, and of course, we encourage everyone to become members. Yes, indeed. I uh, saw that they needed people for a Planet Fest celebration, a Mars landing in 1999, that ended up not happening because it crashed. Before I knew it, uh, I was running the audiovisual uh, side of that, that Planet Fest celebration at the pa- Pasadena Convention Center and had a great time. And then it was only a couple of months after that I was asked to join the staff. Uh, I was working full-time, had been for many years, for Cal State Long Beach as a, as a manager, a director. I, I stayed at the university, and, and, but I went part-time at the society. Uh, a few years later, Lou Friedman, our co-founder tr- and executive director at the time, tried to get me to go full-time. I was very tempted even then, but it's a good thing I didn't. My boss, the dean at Cal State Long Beach, said, don't do that. You won't get a pension. So I stayed at the university, didn't go full-time at the, uh, at the planetary site until only about seven, eight years ago. But um, I, I was there for a couple of years doing this and that. It was a very small organization, and everybody had multiple duties. But from the start in 2000, I was thinking, there ought to be a radio show. And uh, Lou Friedman eventually invited me to go ahead and give it a shot. And as he said just last week on Planetary Radio, because we were celebrating our 20th anniversary, he had his doubts. He didn't know if this would go, but there were some people encouraging him, and I certainly wanted to give it a try. So as you said, we started on my old college radio station, KUCI. Within a fairly short amount of time, we were on a whole bunch of stations. And then along came podcasting, and uh, the rest is, is I hope, history. Uh, wow. But it's, uh, it sure has been a good run. Wow. It's at this moment I realized for the first time that you and I are both uh, anteaters. Oh, hey, zot, zot. <laughs> I went to med school at UC Irvine, so yeah. Oh, no kidding. I didn't know that, Doug. Well, that, it's a great place. Yeah. It was back then anyway. I, I think it still is. And KUCI is still going strong. Yes, yes, it is. Yes, it is. And so I always think that's a wonderful thing that, uh, you know, you spend a lot of time on KDVS and uh, you start out at KUCI. So you've got, you got the UC stations uh, dialed in. It's, uh, I, I still think of myself very much as a radio person. 
uh, and, and, you know, a community radio person, because that's what we did back then. And so, like, you know, it was totally student-run, and it's where I really got the most valuable portion of my training uh, and, and the experience. And, you know, I, I listen to some of that stuff now, and I can barely listen to it, but I sure <laughs> learned a lot. Well, we know what you mean, listening to some of the earliest efforts we made. Uh, it's, it's, ni- it's nice to get better with time. Yeah, I'll say yeah, I, I can't resist, Matt, mentioning that you, you were talking about that Mars landing in 1999. I, I was also there at the Pasadena Convention Center, and I'll never oh. forget, I, I can't resist throwing this out, the, the, the lander did fail, and I guess the, the head of NASA at that time was very disappointed, naturally. And the motto that they'd been throwing at the public was, better, better faster, cheaper. And when the mission failed, I remember standing next to a, a booth with an engineer that kind of smirked and said, faster, better, cheaper, pick two, <laughs> which has always exactly. stuck with me. <laughs> you know, that is such a classic thing to say. Yeah, you can have any two, but not three. And, uh, yeah, I remember that being said at the time. That was Dan Golden, the NASA administrator. Yes. Who did a lot of really good stuff. Uh, but, uh, but, yeah, maybe they were going too fast. Of course, it wasn't too much later that uh, Faster, Better, Cheaper actually did work with uh, Pathfinder and the little Sojourner rover that put us back on course for, uh, for Mars exploration. Let's talk about Mars. Planetary Society wants to go to all the different places in our solar system, and it produces a wonderful magazine, a planetary uh, report, which is just beautiful photographs. Thank you. Uh, but, but Mars, I think, always has managed to capture people above, above all else. And I was looking through your, your archives, and, and there's a photo of you with the Curiosity rover. I was impressed. Oh, what an experience. And I got to do it again for Perseverance. There is nothing like putting on the white bunny suit, going into the air shower, the little airlock, and then going into that towering room and standing feet away from this big robot that is going to be rolling around Mars doing science. It's just a, it's the most amazing experience. And uh, uh, I, I've been in the clean room a, a few other times, that big high bay, but really there's no, nothing touches those two times with, uh, with those two big rovers, Curiosity and Perseverance. And I think of it now when I see pictures that they are taking on Mars, sometimes selfies that they take of themselves. Right. Uh, and I think, my God, that is the same piece of machinery, the same robot that I, I was in the room with. That's, that is fabulous. We're speaking with Matt Kaplan, the host and producer of the excellent program Planetary Radio. There's a documentary we may want to just make mention of. Uh, it's not officially from the Planetary Society, but it was certainly, I thought, a worthwhile effort about uh, the Opportunity Rover. It was called the Goodnight Oppie. Oh, yeah. I can tell you, we, we had a special screening for uh, society members in oh. Los Angeles. Okay. And, uh, in fact, um, I, as we speak, the next episode of Planetary Radio, mostly it's going to feature a conversation with John Grunsfeld, a five-time astronaut and the former associate administrator of NASA for uh, science. Uh, but we also, I did a couple of interviews there with uh, our current president uh, of the society, Bethany Elman, and our past president, Jim Bell, and a little bit of Bill Nye as well. Uh, and so, yeah, we were there. It's a great film. Have you seen it? Oh, yeah. I just brought back memories, Matt, because they, they showed the uh, the great bouncing ball of the Spirit rover when they put yes. it down. And, and, I, and I was there. Uh, white, that was white-knuckle moments there in Pasadena. 
Oh, yeah. God, that was a terrific Planet Fest. Uh, it's so exciting. And um, you see a lot of Rob Manning in that movie uh, and some other great scientists and engineers, of course. But Rob uh, is now the chief engineer of JPL. He's actually going to be on uh, next week's uh, Planetary oh, wow. Radio. The, um, the, uh, he's going to return to the show. This is interesting. I am so jazzed about this, Doug. I, I, he's, it'll be the uh, December 14 show. And it's going to realize a dream, something I've always wanted to do, and that is to bring Rob Manning together with another guy who is incredibly funny and incredibly creative, innovative, uh, Andy Weir, uh, the author of The Martian and more recently Project Hail Mary. Uh, I'm going to just put them together, and we're going to talk about creativity. And uh, I am just so excited. They're, they will be my last external guests okay. on Planetary Radio because... So the following two shows uh, will be pretty much uh, internally focused. At that Planet Fest back in 2004, I remember meeting Dr. Bruce Murray, who I just had ah. all the uh, respect for in the world, because I guess he was, he was in charge of the, the first mission that went by Mars back in, in 1964, even. Yep, Mariner 4, that's right. I pitched his appearance on our radio show, and he said, sure, uh, let, let me know, and, I, and I'm sorry to say I uh, failed to follow up on it. But I, I think you must have spoken to him many times. Oh, many times. He's, he's was on the show many times, and he just was around the office. And I, I used to now and then give him a ride back to his home across the street from Caltech. One of the greatest regrets in my life is, you know, we lost uh, Bruce some years ago after a long illness, and uh, he was just such a wonderful presence. Uh, and, of course, <laughs> my, my Planetary Society partner for every single episode in our What's Up segment, uh, Bruce Betts. He was actually um, Bruce Betts' Ph.D. advisor, if I remember correctly. And so it was fun to see the two of them together because the two Bruces, Bruce Murray, was always <laughs> coming up with clever insults of Bruce Betts. <laughs> Bruce Betts really had no comeback, which is, was kind of fun to watch. But uh, Bruce Murray, just a terrific guy. You know, of course, Carl Sagan gone for even longer, but we still have Lou Friedman around. We're, yes. we're delighted to still have that uh, co-founder of the society among us. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, too, at that same event, I ran into space artist and genuine astronomer William Hartman. Oh, yeah. Who's, who's done some wonderful work also. His, his, he's got a, uh, speaking of Mars, he has an atlas of Mars, which is a few years old now, but it's still just a wonderful, wonderful book uh, showing so much about, about the surface of Mars that we've learned from our probes. Great artist, great scientist, the man who led the work that, that gave us the theory that most people believe is how we got the moon, uh, that the moon came from this giant oh, yeah. impact on, on proto-Earth, yeah. and a whole bunch of material was thrown out and became the moon, and, and that's generally accepted now. It was not accepted early on. A lot of people had big doubts, but... Uh, there seems to be enough evidence now that it's convinced most people, but that was William Hartman. Is he still giving interviews? We should get him on our show, doggone it. You sure should try. It's been way too long. I should have had him on much more recently. It's been ages. Uh, you definitely should go for it. He's definitely still working uh, and uh, and doing great work. Well, I did want to mention, as we were talking about getting together to have this show, something that just, just blew my mind uh, again still sticking on the subject of Mars for the moment, that scientists took a look at this area where there used to be ocean on Mars and have concluded that some asteroid came in, created a giant mega tsunami, which by coincidence 
happens to have been in an area where our very first lander, the Viking 1, put down, meaning we accidentally landed on this debris pile from the mega tsunami, if these scientists are correct, which uh, is just fantastic. It's a great, great theory. I hope that they, they get more proof of this. But um, uh, it, And it just takes you back to that wonderful concept of Mars billions of years ago being probably wetter than, than Earth. I, I mean, just, you know, we... Of course, we know all the evidence now that there were not, there wasn't just a little bit of liquid water on the surface of Mars. There was a lot. There were lakes and rivers and seas, and you know that's why the Perseverance rover was put down in Jezero Crater because it looks like it was a drainage basin. You can see where the water used to flow into it, uh, and it just is so exciting to think of this happening back then. And of course, even more exciting to think of what might have been living in those seas uh, yeah. all those billions of years ago. Um, um, you know, that's, that's what we're hoping to find out about more about with uh, sample return, uh, with those samples that Perseverance is picking up, that, which hopefully are going to be brought back to Earth sometime in the next decade. Let us hope. Yeah. Speaking of seas and lakes, uh, one of the great accomplishments of, of the space program was to actually put a probe onto Saturn's moon Titan and photograph what it mm. saw as it came down and landed on its equivalent of a stream bed. I mean, you must have just really enjoyed that one. Oh, we're still, I'm still thrilled about it. And, you know, you still talk to people from that mission, Cassini-Huygens. This was the Cassini orbiter that gave Huygens, the European Space Agency probe you're talking about, gave it the ride out there. I mean, just utterly amazing that they were able to achieve this and show us this this little strange world, which in so many ways is more like Earth even than Mars is. Yes. If you forget about the fact that it's ridiculously cold <laughs> and the stuff that flows that makes the rivers and seas and rain there is not water, it's liquid methane for the most part. Um, and, you know, and, and, and what's also so exciting, and, and I've talked to people about this, the Dragonfly mission, the drone, the octocopter that is now uh -huh. being put together at uh, the John Ho Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Lab, we wouldn't have been able to consider the Dragonfly mission, which will hop around on Titan sometime in probably the 2030s, late 2030s probably. We wouldn't even be able to consider that if it hadn't been for the success of Cassini and Huygens uh, showing us that, you know, what Titan was really about. And it's so exciting. It sure is. Uh, I mean, you've had a chance to see all of these probes going to uh, the mission to, to Pluto, uh, certainly really extensive missions to Jupiter and Saturn. Well, besides what we're just talking about, the Huygens probe, does it really jump out at you as something you really thought was really exciting? Oh, uh, boy, it's really hard to pick a favorite. It's an embarrassment um, of riches, I know. I won't even try to tell you my favorite, but I, I can tell you that we ran a poll a while back. We did this for our merchandise partner, Chop Shop. They wanted to come out with a series of posters based on the most popular robotic planetary science missions. And uh, the one that easily came out on top, I'll tell you number two first, that was Cassini, Cassini-Huygens. Okay. Uh, this journey to Saturn we were just talking about. But on top, by a wide margin, Voyager. Uh, Voyager 1, Voyager 2, both of them now in interstellar space, my God, that took us on that grand tour of the solar system, showing us up close and personal for the first time the, the outer solar system planets. I mean, Jupiter and Saturn, yeah, the Pioneer spacecraft had, uh, 
shown us those, but nothing like what Voyager was able to do. And our only views up close still of uh, Uranus and Neptune, uh, which now finally NASA and the scientific community are beginning to do the planning to send a mission to Uranus. Uh, an orbiter this time, much like Cassini, yes, uh, and and reveal more of those gigantic blue worlds. It's it's just it, I, it's not at all surprising uh, that Voyager came out number one. I don't know. Viking would be high on my list because it was so far ahead of its time. Viking right. one and two, orbiters and landers with built-in biological laboratories to look for life on Mars and. Just, just absolutely mind-boggling how advanced they were for the mid-70s when they made the trip. We are speaking with the host of Planetary Radio, Mr. Matt Kaplan. I, I can't resist plugging uh, something that I did. I, I believe I read an article in Planetary Report some years back about that legendary Voyager 2 mission that, that a bright spark working at NASA took a look at the planetary uh, alignments and said, hey, you know what, fellas? If we plan this right, we can get four planets in for the price of one. That's exactly right. And it was an opportunity that would not come. I don't remember the exact duration, but it was going to be hundreds of years. Uh, yeah, over a century, yeah. There you go. That we, that before we would have that opportunity again. And so they had to pull those missions together very quickly. And it's just, uh, think of it. I mean, it's been 40, over 45 years now that they have been in space. We just celebrated the 45th anniversary of of both uh, spacecraft this fall, and they're still working. Yeah. They still have me mechanical tape recorders that are recording data and then sending it back to Earth. Uh, and I think that the light travel time now for those signals to get to back to Earth is 22 hours one way, 22 wow. light hours wow. from those tiny transmitters. And the Deep Space Network is still able to pick up those signals and uh, tell us about interstellar space. It's, it just blows me away. Matt, I'm, I'm trying to think of the name of the chief scientist of Voyager. His name is escaping me at the moment. Ed Stone. Ed Stone. Ed Stone he was there at Planet Fest in 1989. And I don't think I've ever seen a happier, more satisfied-looking man. He was just, <laughs> he was just he was beside himself with how wonderful this had turned out. Ed Stone just retired uh, a month or two ago as chief scientist or our project scientist for Voyager. He had been, been project scientist. He's the only project scientist who worked on the project until his retirement. Uh, so uh, about 50 years. And uh, taking over for him was uh, my good friend Linda Spilker, who okay. was project scientist for Cassini. And now is she started out at, actually at JPL on the Voyager program, became the deputy project scientist, uh, before moving to Cassini, where she was deputy project scientist. Matt, I want to ask you about something that I think the Planetary Society has been on top of for quite a long time, but has finally now gotten some real traction, is this idea of taking a look at these near-Earth objects that are out there and seeing if we might not be able to do something about one of them crashing into Earth and causing all kinds of trouble. You bet. Yeah, this has been something that the Society has made one of its major initiatives right from the start, and uh, even more so in recent years, uh, we have been huge advocates for uh, finding out more about these rocks because we know that one of them someday, could be tomorrow, could be a thousand years from now, is going to be a big one that uh, will be of the size that uh, changed everything on Earth, put the dinosaurs in their place, which is deep underground uh, as fossils, 
and uh, allowed us mammals to get our shot. And we don't want to have that happen to us. You look at the DART mission, so exciting what they've been able to achieve, actually demonstrating that we have now within our power to do what the dinosaurs couldn't, to deflect <laughs> an asteroid. We need to do more, though. I mean, we're big advocates for the NEO Surveyor mission, the infrared telescope in space that would specifically be up there to look for these rocks because it's so much easier to see them in space in the infrared. And, yeah. you know, we are fighting to have the uh, funding restored for that. Fortunately, Congress agrees with us. Uh, we've had, uh, in a very bipartisan way, uh, both the Senate and the House, asking NASA, why did you cut funding for the NEO Surveyor mission or slow it down? Uh, and so it looks like uh, that hopefully is going to be able to move ahead. But, um, you know, we need to find these rocks before they find us. I, I was so uh, intrigued, Matt, to see the, the the genius behind this DART mission was that they it was it was two two asteroids orbiting one another, and the thought was if we smack the smaller one nice and hard, we can then determine how much stuff we blew off it by how it changes the orbit. I just thought that was so so interesting. Yeah, isn't that cool? I mean, just the fact that we have the capability now to detect this kind of thing. Um, you know, it, it's kind of like the search for exoplanets. The exquisite sensitivity that we have in, in detecting the Doppler, the, the change in the uh, wavelength of the light coming from a star, uh, to be able to tell that a planet is there and, and even be able to, you know, tell some details about that planet, or to measure the tiny drop in the amount of light from that star because a planet, a far smaller planet, right. is crossing in front of it. It's just amazing what they're able to do. It certainly is. I imagine you must have had a chance to interview Eugene uh, Shoemaker on occasion? No, I never did. Oh. Um, I, I got to meet his wife, uh, and, and that was delightful. She was a wonderful scientist in her own right. Uh, but no, unfortunately, I never got to meet him. Uh, all the more of a shame because, you know, we named our grant program to support uh, near-Earth object research after him, uh, the Neo Shoemaker uh, Grants, which, yeah. you know, we've been handing out money for years to uh, amateur astronomers and, and professional astronomers at smaller observatories. And it's, uh, uh, I, I know that, you know, his wife was very pleased uh, that we honored him that way. I remember as a boy watching the, 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 the lunar missions that were first doing hard landings and soft landings. I remember the news reporters kept going to this man, Gene Shoemaker, that would explain about craters on the moon. And, and I just thought, you know, uh, I just thought he was a very interesting figure. And then, you know, I forgot about him for decades. And he shows up again, finding a comet that's about to smack into Jupiter. That's right. Shoemaker-Levy. That's right. Which is itself is just a, 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 another jaw-dropping thing. Of course, this was a little bit before you came on board. I've been a space fan for as long as I can remember. I can remember as a little kid, because I'm old, Doug, uh, <laughs> running to the television to watch Mercury launches. And I was, I was pretty young back then. Uh, but well, I've, I've been hooked uh, ever since. I'm, I'm sure we're pretty close to the same age on this one, for having yeah, watched maybe. all those countdowns back in the 60s, etc. What a, what a moment that was, talking about NEO. I mean, that you know, that there, this rumor came that they'd found a comet, and they said, hey, it looks like it's a smashed comet. Then, oh, it looks like it's a comet that's broken up into pieces, and by God, we've done the math, it's going to hit the planet Jupiter. Oh, yes. What are the odds? Yeah, what are the odds that we would catch it? 
Um, and and do it in you know find this in time to to point a lot of telescopes that way. I think that the Hubble was not able to watch the impacts, but the images you can actually see where the pieces of that comet impacted on Jupiter. These black spots on the on the planet. Anybody out there who hasn't seen it ought to you know just Google Shoemaker Levy. Uh, comet impact Jupiter, and uh, you'll see some of this amazing stuff. I mean, it really does give you respect for uh, for the damage that an asteroid or a comet can do if they if they come your way. It, yes, indeed. I uh, I was interested enough at the time where I, I just booked a flight to Los Angeles. I drove to LAX. I got in a rental car. I drove over to JPL and walked into the Van Carmen Auditorium. As the photos came back showing this big black eye on the surface of Jupiter. Wow, I'm envious. I would love to have done that. That's fantastic. So, Matt, uh, after 20 years, a thousand shows, is there a memorable moment you could really you could really uh, focus on? <laughs> uh, there are too many. There are just too many. Um, so many great people that I've spoken to. Um, you know, if I had to pick anything, the, 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 maybe the things that stand out the most are the live shows that we've been able to do all over the world, Planetary Radio Live, which, you know, kind of came to a halt because of the pandemic, but yeah. hopefully we'll, we're going to get back into doing live events. In fact, uh, I'll be at the Planetary Defense Conference that happens every other year. That, that'll be in Vienna in, this, in the spring, and God and the universe willing, I will be there to do a public event. Wow. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, and then some of the field trips that we've made, like going up into the, the the mountains above the Atacama Desert to visit at the high site, to go to the ALMA array, that amazing array of radio telescopes that is 5,000 meters, 16,500 feet up, you know, where they had to give us a little can of oxygen that you had to take a pull <laughs> on uh, every couple of minutes because otherwise you'd pass out, get pretty crazy with anoxia. And, um, you know, it's the stuff like that. I mean, it, like going into uh, the high bay at JPL. Those really stand out. But, man, getting to meet the hundreds and hundreds of heroes, because that's really how I think of them. Those are the best. Well, I, and and I besides running over to Vienna and, and going to the Atacama Desert, uh, what other things are you going to be doing in your semi-retirement? <laughs> Yeah, semi, I guess, is the word. Um, they're going to keep me pretty busy. I'll keep helping with the transition uh, as Sarah takes over Planetary Radio. Um, but uh, we're going to, uh, Planetary Society in the spring is going to be starting up what actually Sarah has been working on the last two years. We've been calling it our digital community. Well, now we're calling it the member community, where we're going to have all kinds of new ways for members of the society to um, interact with each other, to interact with us. We're going to have events. We'll have an app that they can, so they can carry us around with, uh, with them as they go do other things. And uh, they're, they're going to be, I, I think I'll be pretty involved with that. I'm also going to be helping out with our uh, advisory council, uh, which has got some terrific scientists and people with other areas of expertise uh, who advise us as to the directions that we go in and the initiatives we take on. I'll be helping some with that. And there are several other things that our, our chief operating officer, Jennifer Vaughn, has asked me to become involved with. So I think we're going to keep me pretty busy. The one thing I won't have is, is that weekly uh, deadline hanging over my head 
as it has for the last uh, now 20-plus years. And I'm guessing there's a certain amount of release in that. Uh, oh, yeah, and how, and how. <laughs> but, it, you know, it's definitely mixed emotions because the best part of the job is getting to talk to those heroes that I mentioned, have these wonderful conversations that I selfishly want to have with them, and then share them with the world. So, uh, you know, I think you know how thrilling that is. Yes, indeed. We certainly want to, in closing, just thank you for all the good work that you've done on what has been an excellent program, and we assume will will continue to be an excellent program uh, thanks to your work. Thank you so much, Doug. Uh, And I am completely convinced that Sarah Alameda is going to do a terrific job. The show hasn't changed much in 20 years, and uh, she's going to bring new blood in and new ideas, and uh, I'm expecting great things. I hope, and I hope you will will find a way to keep us posted. Oh, I'd love to, Doug. And I, like I said, I I look forward to talking again. And and as uh, in closing, my producers handed me a question that he wants me to ask, which I'm reluctant to do and may <laughs> cut out. But his question to you is: Star Trek or Star Wars? <laughs> oh, uh, easy one, easy Trek all the way. I'm a fan. I like Star Wars. I just finished Andor, which was fantastic. But uh, you know, you want to see a future that you can actually imagine uh, living in and wanting to live in. That's Star Trek all the way. So uh, live long and prosper, Doug. I certainly hope, Matt, that Sarah will consider at some point bringing on William Shatner uh, as part of her efforts to promote. I wish her luck. I couldn't get him on the show. But, you couldn't? Uh, but, uh, no, no. I tried a couple of times, but uh, he was uh, he was a busy guy, I guess. But that that's okay. I'm very happy with <laughs> the folks I was able to get. Matt Kaplan, always a pleasure, and I do hope that we will uh, will speak again. And bon voyage into semi-retirement. Oh, thank you, Doug. Uh, it has been a pleasure, and uh, all, all the best to you as well. All right, sir. Let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We've got plenty more. Stick around. <laughs> 